We don't have a lot of time today, so I want to jump right in. We are in the last week of our Life After Death series. Uh, we have spent the last month or so talking about heaven and hell. And we've done a lot of things. We've looked at the reality of eternity that every one of us are going to live after we die. Uh, we've looked at, uh, we've got a glimpse of what hell is going to be like. We took a week and looked at what a, what, what a glimpse of what heaven is going to be like. As well as last week, we looked and said, how do we live in light of eternity? Because really this life should be affected by the life that is to come. And so throughout this series, one of the things I've said is in five weeks, it's going to be hard to kind of cover everything that we want to know about heaven and hell, because really we just got a glimpse of those two subjects. And so what I've encouraged you to do is I've encouraged you to write down your questions when we're talking about heaven, we're talking about hell, you know, and you have that question, you know, well, what about this? And, and you know, what about that? I've encouraged you to write those questions down, turn them in, and uh, we will begin to, tr- today we're going to try and answer some of those questions. And so Today is something completely different. I've never done something like this before. I've actually never been in a church that has done something like this before. And so it's going to be really different. So if you're a visitor with us today, uh, we're so excited you're here. But I hope you understand we're just a little different today, which is not a bad thing. Uh, so what we've done is we've got, we've got 10 questions that we're going to be able to hopefully answer all of them through. And hopefully it should take us about 42 minutes. I did time it. We should be at 42 minutes. Uh, hopefully we're not any longer because I know some of you want to get back to the game after halftime. We'll see how we do with that. You know, we'll see. Um, Let me say, we're going to run through a lot of scripture today. And so one of those days that you may not be able to flip fast enough as we go through. So you might want to just write these uh, scripture verses down and we'll do our best. Um, Within these questions, let me just kind of set some some ground rules for how I went about answering these questions. Here at Restoration Church, we believe the Bible is God's perfect word. And so if the Bible speaks clearly on the the question that we've asked, uh, we're going to let the Bible be the authoritative answer. And we're going to trust what the Bible says, uh, and we won't waver from that. There are some questions that some of you have asked, and I'm so thankful you asked them. I really am so thankful you asked them. Uh, There are some questions that the Bible doesn't clearly give us an answer. So what we're going to do is we're going to look in in the Bible for maybe a principle or or something that would speak towards that, uh, that would give us an answer to that question. So really, what my goal is today is that we would all have an understanding of... uh, there's all sorts of questions that we can answer, uh, but we can't really trust our own logic. We've got to trust God's word and say we've got to allow God's word to influence what we think about things. Um, if you want to dig deeper into the subject of heaven and hell, I just want to say I would highly recommend uh, this book right here, um, Heaven by Randy Alcorn. It is a big book, and, but it is, it is a great resource. If you want to dig deeper into heaven and hell, I'd encourage you to pick this book up and uh, spend some time. You want to do this in the morning because if you do this at bedtime, you will fall asleep. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's one of these big words, uh, deep books. And so a great book. I'd love for you to pick that up and use that as a resource. So you guys ready for this? All right. The first question, and you knew this one was coming. The first question that we got was, do our pets go to heaven? Do our pets go to heaven? Now this let me just say, this might be the most controversial issue we've dealt with as a church. I mean, this is probably something that could split the church down the middle, right? Right? So, my answer is, it depends. It depends on whether or not we're talking about dogs or cats, right? As you might have picked up, 
I'm more of a dog person. We have a little miniature dachshund at home. Her name is Lulu. She's a cute little dog. She needs a bath, but she's a cute little dog right now. And uh, my sister had cats when we were growing up. And the only thing I really found useful for a cat was to see how far you could hold the cat and see if it really lands on its feet, right? Because isn't that the way cats, you're supposed to be able to drop them and they land on their feet? I don't know if my sister remembers that. We have a strained relationship because of that all these years later. So So let's do this. Let's just have a little bit of fun with this question. Um, How many of you, we're going to take a vote. We're going to ask you interactive right now. How many of you think that your pet will die and go to heaven with you? Let's see. Okay. Okay. How many of you think your pet, when it dies, it becomes warm dirt? Yeah. And how many of you are wusses and were afraid to answer the question? Yeah, there's a few of you, you guys are, are wusses and afraid to. <laughs> well, in this topic, this is, a, this is you know, we, we have some fun with this, but this is a pretty serious thing because I know that pets can be so inclined to our hearts and, and, and you know, we have that relationship with them. So to answer this question, let's talk about a few things that we do know. We don't know that in Genesis one twenty seven it says that God created man and woman in his own image. And we know that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that God breathed spiritual life into man. So there's something special that God did with man. Now, did God create the animals? Yes. Did God create Fido and Fluffy? Yes, he did. But God did not breathe spiritual life into those animals. You don't see that anywhere throughout Scripture. We also know that Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says... Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So whoever, whoever uh, believes in Jesus, though he dies, yet he will live eternally. Now, I don't know about your dog, but I've never heard my dog call on the name of Jesus. And I know there's no way a cat's ever going to do that anyways, right? And so, and so I have to look at the Bible and say, you know, I just... I don't think that our pets are going to die and be in heaven with us. Now, I know before you get up and walk out, before you threaten to shoot me because I just crushed your heart, let me add a little bit to that statement. I do believe that there will be animals in heaven. The Bible seems pretty clear. In fact, if you look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, it's prophesied that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall Lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. A little child shall lead them. So how do we answer this question? Do our pets go to heaven? No, I don't think our pets that we know in this life, Fido, Lulu, Fluffy, I don't think that they're going to be in heaven with us. But there will be animals in heaven. So maybe you'll get a new Fido. Maybe you'll get a new Fluffy. Maybe you'll have a different pet. So no, your pet will not be resurrected in heaven with you. But there will be animals in heaven. Does that answer the question pretty fairly? And this includes dogs and cats. Okay. There we go. Question number one. That was a hard one. Now, the rest of them are a lot easier from there. All right. Second question. This one was regarding hell. The question that came in was, is hell eternal is hell eternal now what i find interesting is when we start talking about the subjects of heaven and hell there is a higher percentage of people who believe in heaven than there is who believe in hell and you know just it's kind of just intriguing but according to the bible hell is just as real as heaven is and the bible seems clear and explicit 
teaching that heaven is a real place to which the wicked and the unbelieving will be sent after death. So the question is, is hell eternal? We believe that there's this place called hell. Is it eternal? And so we're going to look through uh, a number of Bible verses. Again, you can read them on the screen. You can write them down for future reference. Um, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Mark chapter 9, verse 43 says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Second Thessalonians 1, 9 says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Revelation 20, verse 10 says, And the devil who had deceived him was thrown into uh, the, fi- the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tor- tormented day and night forever and ever. And finally, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, Jesus is speaking. And Jesus says, and these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous will enter into eternal life. So, what does the Bible say? Is hell eternal? Yes. Hell is a place of torment and punishment that lasts forever and ever with no end. So just as heaven is real and heaven is eternal, we believe the Bible teaches that hell is real and hell is eternal. Praise God, though, that that through Jesus we can escape that eternal fate in hell. Next question. Next question came in. It was this. It said, is there time in heaven? Is there time in heaven? And the clarifying part to this question was they said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, it says, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So because that's what the Bible says, and because heaven is eternal, the question is, will there be time in heaven or not? So, yes, I believe there's going to be time in heaven. I believe we will have time in heaven. Uh, there's a couple of verses that lead to that conclusion. In Luke chapter 15, verse 7, it says that the angels rejoice over one sinner who repents on the earth. So the angels are up in heaven, and they're tracking what's happening on earth. They're tracking what's happening on real time. And that moment that one sinner on this earth repents, the angels at that moment are throwing a party. Okay? In Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, uh, 10 and 11, talks about the martyrs in heaven and how they are told to wait a little bit longer when they ask how long before Christ will judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge their blood. They say, how long until you respond, Jesus? And their responded in heaven will be wait a little longer until time passes in heaven. So you see these terms of how long and wait a little bit longer. And these are terms of time. So in heaven, you see time happening again in Revelation chapter 7, verse 15. It says that God's people will serve him uh, day and night in his temple. Again, day and night, these are terms of time. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 2, it talks about the tree of life and the new earth. And the tree of life will, build, will yield its fruit every month. Again, month is a term of time. All right? Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, we're told that there was silence in heaven for about a half of an hour. So the conclusion that we take when we look at Scripture is the Bible very clearly points out that there will be time in heaven. 
Yes, we're going to be in heaven for eternity and eternity and forever and ever. Yet there'll still be some sort of time. I don't think that we're going to be managed by the time like we are now. But there will be time in heaven. So these were some of the funner questions, some of the easier questions. Then this starts looking into some of the deeper questions. This next question comes in and says, what is purgatory and what does the Bible teach about it? Okay, what is purgatory and what does the Bible teach about purgatory? For those of you who don't know what purgatory is, purgatory is a doctrine that the Catholic Church teaches. Basically saying that purgatory is a place where a Christian soul goes after death to be cleansed of the sins that had not been fully satisfied while on this earth. Okay? So, so basically, a Christian, when you die, there's a place that you go that's kind of a transition place before you get to heaven where you have to suffer for some of the sins that weren't fully paid for before you can go into heaven. Now, this idea of purgatory also leads into a couple of other uh, doctrines, such as um, prayer for the dead, indulgences, doing good works on behalf of the dead. Now, when we look at human logic, we think this idea kind of sounds like a good idea because it kind of sounds like you get a second chance, right? Like purgatory is like this transition place. And and maybe if you do and suffer in purgatory, maybe then you'll be granted an opportunity to be in heaven. So it almost sounds like a second chance. And so, you know, it really, hey, that makes us feel good. But even though it makes us feel good, I think the Bible is very clear uh, in refuting this idea. Follow along on a few things. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Romans 5, verse 8, Paul the apostle says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And 1 John 2, verse 2 says, uh, He is a propitiation for our sins, and not only ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So these verses become the, the, the basis of salvation, the basis of Christi- Christianity, that Jesus died to pay the penalty for all of our sins. Jesus was the one who paid the penalty for us. So instead of us having to pay that penalty of sin, Jesus paid it for us. His death was sufficient, was sufficient for God's justice so that God would forgive us. Additionally, one of the other things that we're going to see in Scripture is that our salvation is completely independent on us. It has nothing to do with us. We can't do enough good works to satisfy God's justice. We can't, we can't do enough to earn God's righteousness. And the only thing that will satisfy God's justice is death. And so if we were to suffer for a short time in purgatory, that still isn't enough to... to, 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 to satisfy God's justice. That's why the Bible says in Isaiah 53 verse 5, he says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. See, this verse says that Jesus suffered for our sins uh, so that we could be delivered from suffering. It says that, that, that to say that we must suffer for our sins would be essentially the same as saying as Jesus' suffering wasn't enough. And so if there's this idea of purgatory that we have to suffer some sort of punishment for our sins, then we're saying that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. So this very idea of purgatory, it fails to recognize that Jesus' death was sufficient for the penalty of all of our sins. So if we, if we have to, in any sense, if we have to atone or to suffer because of our sins, that would be saying that Jesus' sacrifice was not perfect. It was not complete. It was not sufficient to meet God's demand. 
So, what is purgatory? I think we define what purgatory is. And I think the Bible clearly refutes the idea of purgatory. Next question. This one is, is, is a loaded question that leads into several other types of questions. The specific question was re- in regards to witnessing to a, a Mormon and trying to answer a question about the continuation or dissolution of marriage. So the question is this. The question is, do we remain married to our spouse in heaven? Do we remain married to our spouse in heaven? The easiest way to answer this question is to look at Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, uh, Jesus is having a conversation with some of the religious leaders called the Sadducees. And um, they are trying to, the Sadducees are trying to trick Jesus with a question about marriage. The Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So they, attempting to make Jesus look like a fool, they told Jesus a story about a woman who had seven husbands who had all died. Now, we call that woman a black widow, right? I mean, that's not the woman. I mean, men, if there's a woman and all of her husbands die, seven of them, you may just want to watch out, right? Just saying. So they tell Jesus about the story. She's got seven husbands who have died. And so their question is in Matthew 22, verse 28, they say, In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For she was married to all of them. And again, they're trying to trick Jesus. And Jesus answers in verse 30. And he says, For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. And we need to clarify something here. This is not saying that we will be angels in heaven. This is not what it's saying. Rather, in regards to the topic of whether we are married in heaven, Jesus said that we will be like the angels. The angels in, in, in heaven, they're not married. They, they aren't given to marriage. They aren't, they aren't going to experience marriage in heaven. And so, and so in regards to us, will we be married in heaven? The Bible says, no, we're going to be like the angels. Will we not be married? Will not be given to marriage in heaven? Now, some of you guys are like, yes. Woo-hoo! Some of you women are like, oh no. And that was probably a really corny joke. And I'm sorry for that one, but I had to get something on there. Um, This does not necessarily mean, though, that a husband and a wife will not know each other in heaven. Um, I think that a husband and a wife, I think you will know who each other are. I think you'll you'll still have a a close relationship. But specifically, the Bible says that you will not experience marriage that we, like we know, in heaven. But while the Bible says that we won't be married to our spouse in heaven, the Bible does talk about a marriage in heaven. Um, in fact, in fact, there's one specific marriage that they talk about, a marriage between Christ and his bride, which is the church. And, and, and that is all the Christians who have ever placed their faith in Jesus. It says there will be a marriage between Christ and us. Paul wrote this idea in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. Speaking of marriage, Paul says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then here's the kicker. Paul says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and to the church. See, what Paul's saying is that our earthly marriage union, the the marriage that we know on this earth, is really a sign pointing to a relationship with Jesus in heaven. That earthly marriage is a shadow. It It is a copy. It is an echo of the true and the ultimate marriage that God will establish between him and, and us as the church. That one marriage will be our marriage to Christ. It will be so completely satisfying uh, that even the most wonderful marriage on earth couldn't nearly be as fulfilling as a relationship we will have with Jesus in heaven.
So once that ultimate marriage begins, once we are in heaven and we're able to experience that marriage with Jesus, these human marriages will already have served their purpose. They'll serve their noble purpose. And they will be assimilated into the one great marriage that is foreshadowed. See, the purpose of marriage is not to replace heaven, but to prepare us for it. That's good right there. I don't know who wrote that. I took that from somebody. I don't know where it came from. But I'll say that again. The purpose of marriage is not to replace heaven, but to prepare us for it. So I hope that answers your question on, will we be married in heaven? Next question. This is one similar to the one on marriage. And the question is this. Will we recognize our family and friends in heaven? Will, when we get to heaven, will we recognize each other in heaven? Undoubtedly, this question comes from people who they long for heaven because they think the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go find somebody who's died and I miss. I'm going to go find my friends. I'm going to go find my family. I'm going to say, man, I've missed you. Let's go. Let's go hang out. Let's go, you know, let's go have some time together. I'd love to be able to catch up with you on, on what's, what we've missed. So the question is, when we get to heaven, will we actually recognize our family and our friends? Now, this isn't necessarily completely clear in scripture, but we take a couple principles from scripture and I believe they say that we will recognize our family and friends in heaven. Here's the reason why a couple of, 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 of principles from scripture. In first, uh, first Samuel chapter 28, the king of Israel, a dude named Saul, he had lost favor with God and he, he, he had messed up. And so he'd lost God's favor and he's trying now to cling to some kind of help from God. He's in a bind. He's like, God, I need some sort of help, but God, I know I've, I've disobeyed you. So you're not, you're not helping me out. And so what Saul does is he calls for a medium. He basically calls for a witch and he says, Hey, witch, I want you to summon the dead prophet Samuel from the dead. You know, this is kind of, this is kind of a trippy thing. It's kind of Halloween, so it kind of fits, but you know, and so he says, I want you to summon Samuel from the dead. And when Samuel appears, King Saul is able to recognize him. King Saul is, 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 is fearful when he sees him. And Saul, uh, the, the prophet Samuel, really lays into him and says, dude, you're an idiot, whatever. That's another story. We won't get into it. But the idea that we need to understand is, is Sam, or Saul recognized Samuel. In Luke chapter 16, which we covered a few weeks ago, we hear the story about Lazarus and, and Abraham and the rich man. And one of the things that we understood in that passage or in that story in Luke chapter 16 was that uh, Abraham and Lazarus and the rich man, they were all still recognizable. They could see, they could see who each other were. They could recognize who each other were. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 17, it's the story of, of the transfiguration of Jesus and, and when Jesus went up onto the mount for the transfiguration, he brought, he brought Peter and John with him. And Peter and John, during this amazing, amazing story, this amazing thing that they were able to observe, the transfiguration of Jesus, they were able to recognize both Moses and Elijah. So I believe that, yes, the Bible says we will recognize our, our, our loved ones, our friends, our family in heaven. Uh, and there's, there's one more scripture that I think really paints the picture, because I think for, for many of us, we think about people that we know that have died, whether they be family or friends, and, and we long for them. We miss them. We have this, this hole because we, we have such a love for them. And I love this because in, in First, Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is writing about his longing and his anticipation to be reunited with his friends in Thessalonica. And, and this is what Paul says in verse 19. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord at his coming? Is it not you? He's saying, I am so looking forward to the time when Jesus Christ returns. Because at that point, 
I will be reunited with you. We will be in heaven together. We will celebrate. We will be able to say, hey, all that time, we we were so far apart, and now we are back together. And Paul says, I am longing for that reuniting. So yes, in heaven, in eternity, we will have plenty of time to, to see and to know and to spend time with our friends and our loved ones. However, that's not going to be our primary focus in heaven. It's not like we're going to throw a party and just go and hang out with our friends all the time. We will be far too occupied with worshiping Jesus and enjoying the wonders of heaven than to just be hanging out only with our friends. Our reunions with our loved ones will be more likely uh, with recounting the, the grace and the glory of God in our lives, about his wondrous love and about his mighty works that God has done on our behalf. So, again... I hope that answers your question. Will we recognize our, our loved ones in heaven? Now, this one is kind of another one of those questions that's related to the one before. This question says, when we are in heaven, how will we not be sad for those people that we love, those family members, those friends who are not with us in heaven? I mean, I mean, you, that, that, that's really a great question. If we're in heaven, if we're enjoying the benefits of heaven, if we're in this eternal place, and, and we know there's people that we love that aren't here with us, how would we not be sad for them? How would we not just be overwhelmed with grief for the people that aren't with us? And I think for all of us, we can begin thinking through, well, yeah, you know, I've got this person that I know isn't a Christian. I've got this person. I've got this family member. I mean, how would we not be sad for them if they're not in heaven with us? Because if they're not in heaven, we know where they are. A couple things to think about. A couple things we've got to understand. First, Psalm chapter 18, verse 30. Uh, it says that this God, that his way is perfect. That God is perfect. That God's dwelling place is perfect. God's plan of salvation is perfect. Everything about God is, is perfect. He, and in his perfect plan, in God's perfect plan, he extends the righteousness of Christ to all those who trust in him. To all those who surrender to him and say, Jesus, I'm yours. Okay? So God in his perfect plan, what he does is he extends that righteousness to everybody who believes in him. The question is, well, what about those who don't believe in Jesus? What about those who don't trust Jesus as their Savior? Really, what those people are doing is they are rejecting perfection. They're rejecting God's perfect plan. They're rejecting God himself. Okay? John 3.18 says very clearly, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But then he says, whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed the name of the only Son of God. So, if there was some way to force people to believe or to ignore their sin or to bypass their sin, it would really destroy the idea of perfection about God. And so, for those who do not believe in Jesus, we do believe that they're going to be in hell. We believe that's what the Bible says very clearly. Now, the question is, how will we just not be sad for them? I mean, we love these people. When we arrive in heaven, I believe our perspective is going to be changed. See, we have this limited earthly perspective on this earth that we have. And when we get to heaven, it's going to be replaced by a holy and a, and a, and a heavenly perspective. And specifically in speaking on heaven, remember what we learned a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago when we studied about heaven, we said Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 says this. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
So we have this idea on our earthly standard, on the earthly view of, yeah, of course, if I'm in heaven and, and my, my brother, my, my spouse, my parent, my best friend, if they're not in heaven with me and I know they're suffering in hell, how would I not be sad for that? But you got to remember, what Jesus just said is there's not going to be any mourning. There's not going to be any sadness. Not going to be any tears. And I think we can look and we can agree that that sadness, that mourning, that grieving for those that aren't with us would fall under what Jesus just said that we'll not have in heaven. So I don't know specifically how. Somehow, some way, we will have no knowledge or remembrance of those in hell that aren't with us. Somehow, some way, we aren't going to be grieved by that. I, we're not told why. We're not told how. I think there's a couple ideas that I can deduce from, from just knowledge. Number one, perhaps, perhaps we will come to understand uh, how our loved one's absence glorifies God. Because again, God is perfect. And when we stop seeing things with our earthly perspective, when we see things on God's perspective, maybe we'll just have an understanding of that. Or perhaps, perhaps somehow, um, perhaps somehow God will erase that memory. I, I mean, I don't know how it's going to happen. But I do know very clearly that the Bible says there'll be no mourning or, or, or tears or grieving in heaven. So will we be sad for those in heaven, for those in hell? I don't think so. I, don't, I, I believe the, picture, the, the Bible is, is clear to point us to the idea that we won't grieve over family and friends that are not with us. That's a tough question, huh? I mean, that kind of leaves you, you know, where it's like, yeah, I know what the Bible says, but, you know, my earthly standard, I just long for more. I'm just giving you what the Bible says. Two more questions, two more real good questions. Uh, this next question is, will all the children who die... As a, at a young age, whether they be babies or young children, will they go to heaven before the age of accountability? This is, this is just a, a huge question. This is, this is a, a deep question with, with deep meaning. Um, if you've ever lost a child, whether that be through miscarriage or, or SIDS or some sort of other accident when a child was young, this is it's just deeply personal. And it's deep and it carries a lot of weight and, and it's sometimes hard for us to, to understand this. Now, this concept of an age of accountability is an idea that children will not be held accountable by God for their sins until they reach a certain age. Um, and if that child dies before that certain age, the age of accountability, then that child will, by the grace and by the mercy of God, they will be granted entrance into heaven. So the question is, is the concept of an age of accountability, is that biblical? Is that something that is true? Is there such thing as an age of innocence? For a child. So again, we're going to look at a couple different ways to, to look at this. And a couple things we have to understand before we can answer this. First of all, every person, every adult, every child, every baby, they are not born innocent uh, in the sense of being sinless. The Bible tells us repeatedly that even, in, even as an infant or a child, even though they haven't committed a sin, that all people, including our little, beautiful soft, cuddly babies. They are uh, guilty before God because of an inherited sin nature, because of imputed sin. See, this inherited sin nature is what is passed on from our parents, that is passed on from our parents, that is passed on and passed on all the way from Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, their sin nature then got passed on to every child that they had, who's been passed on and passed on to every one of us and passed on to our children. So none of us in that regard are innocent. 
In fact, in, in Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, David wrote, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David recognized that even at conception, he was a sinner. You know, even the fact, you look at the fact that a baby dies, you know what death is a result of? You know what death is a result of? It's, it's, it's a result of Adam's original sin. This physical death, spiritual death, it is a result of, of Adam's original sin. So even the fact that a baby experiences death, you see that they are affected by this sin nature, by this imputed sin. So every person, whether they're infant or adult, they stand guilty before God. They are sinners sinning against a perfect and holy God. Each person has offended the holiness of God. The only way that we can be just, the only way that we can be forgiven is that we have to, uh, got to read my notes here. The only way that we can be just and at the same time declare a person righteous is for that person to have received righteousness by faith through Jesus Christ. The only way that we can stand before God and be forgiven is that we have to exchange our sinfulness for Jesus' righteousness, which is what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so that is the only way that we can stand before God as holy and as a way into heaven. God, Jesus Christ, is the only way. Jesus said very clearly in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Also, Peter states in Acts chapter 14, verse 12, he says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given, by, given to men by which we must be saved. Okay? The only way for us to be forgiven, the only way for us to enter the gates of king, uh, the kingdom of heaven is through Jesus Christ. Salvation is a choice. Every one of us has to make that choice whether we're going to surrender to Jesus or not. The question is, well, what about babies? What about babies and children who die when they are young before they have the ability to make that choice to become a Christian? You know, the belief of an age of an accountability answers that question. Again, we need to understand the Bible never says age of accountability and never specifically clearly says this. But it's an idea that, that, that God saves all those who die never having the, possess the ability to actually make a decision either for or against Jesus. So, so, well, what is the age? You know, is there a certain age that a kid has to get to so they can have this age of accountability? Well, uh, the Bible never says this is an age that we have to be. Some people say it's age 12 because they look in the story of Luke chapter 2 when Jesus, as a young child, goes into the temple and starts teaching all the, all the, all the teachers. You know, they say, well, maybe it's age 12. We just don't really know, okay? The Bible doesn't really say what that age of accountability is. But while the Bible gives no direct support to an age of accountability, it does seem that this is, this is, is congruent with God's character, with God's personality, that he would extend grace and love. And there's a couple of passages that would give us a, a reason why we can stand and why I would say I believe that a child who dies before this age of accountability will be in heaven. There's a couple of, of Bible passages to support that. Probably the best one is to look in First Samuel, excuse me, Second Samuel chapter 12. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, the context of this passage, the context of this verse is uh, King David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And uh, that resulted in a pregnancy. That's what usually happens when you partake in those activities. And so he, he is, his, his, uh, Bathsheba gets pregnant. And so um, 
the prophet Nathan was sent by God to inform David that because of his sin, because of his sin, that the Lord would take his child in death. And so, and so this leads David into this, uh, this time of grieving and he prays for his child and, and, and David is on his knees and he's praying saying, God, God, would you somehow spare my child? God, would you not take the life of my child? And he's on his knees and he's praying before, he's praying before God, God, would you spare my child? But eventually the child was, was taken into death and the child dies and David's mourning comes to an abrupt end. And David's servants, who are all watching this, they're surprised by what has happened. And the servants ask King David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 21, they say, What is this thing that you have done? They say, You have fasted and you have wept for the child while he was alive. And now that he is dead, you're done. Now you're eating and you've arose and you've eaten food. And you're kind of moving on. David, what's going on? I mean, you're, you're, you're weeping and mourning and grieving for this child while he's alive. And now that he's dead, it's like you're getting up and you're just going to go and eat like life is going to go on. And David responded in verses 22 and 23. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, for who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now that he is dead, why shall I fast? Can I bring him back again? And here's the kicker. He says, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David's response was, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. This indicates that David is is indicating by, I will go to him. He's anticipating that he's going to go to where his son is, even though he's not going to be able to bring him back to life. And, And just as encouraging by this, you look and you can see David almost seems comforted by this fact. When he when he's no longer grieving for his child, he almost seems comforted by the fact that I will go to him, I will be with him again, but he will not be able I can't bring him back to life. There almost seems like he is being comforted by the fact that there's going to be some day that he's going to see his child in heaven even though he can't bring his child back to life. So, although it is uh, possible that God applies Christ's judgment for sin to those who cannot believe. The Bible doesn't specifically say this is how it happens. But we can't look, and we can't look at principles in Scripture and say, you know, it appears that David anticipated he was going to be in heaven with his, uh, with his son. So I think there's uh, something that we can say. We can't, we can't be certain about this, but I can think through Scripture. I think we apply that principle and say, will children before that age of accountability be in heaven? Yes, I believe so. I hope that encouraged you. I, I hope if, if you've been in that situation, I hope that's uh, encouraging to you because it's, it is difficult. Um, similarly, I think this would also include the mentally hand, handicapped as well. I think you apply that same principle where the mentally handicapped, if they're not coming to an age where they can comprehend uh, things, I think that would apply to them as well, that they would be um, extended God's grace and mercy to be in heaven. Um, so, you know, Again, we can't be dogmatic about it, but we can be certain of this. God is, is, God is loving. God is holy. God is merciful. God is just. God is gracious. Whatever God does is always right and always good. And the other thing that we can know about God is, is God loves our children more than we do. So, yes, I think with the character of God, I believe that we will see our children in heaven. 
As we come into our last question, I want to just remind you, if you've missed any of the sermon series, um, all these sermons are available online on our website, uh, restorationyakima.com. We'd love you to pick any of those up if you've missed. missed. They've been been a good one. This last question uh, says this. It says, a friend told me that she doesn't understand why Christ's death is necessary. Question is, why do we need a Savior to go to heaven? Why do we need Jesus to die so we can get to God? Why do we need a Savior? This really comes down to the basis of Christianity. This really comes down to really the basis of what we believe as a church as to why we're here. See, the problem is, is we all sin. Problem is, we have that sin nature that we talked about, that we were born with this sin nature. We inherited a sin nature. It's been imputed onto us. In fact, Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all sinners by nature. And we need to understand, some of you don't like that. Some of you are like, you're calling me a sinner. Absolutely, I'm calling every one of us a sinner. Sin isn't just doing bad things, but it's also doing, uh, doing things for our own glory and our own honor. So sin affects every one of us. Every one of us in here, you know, if you're sitting there, I'm not a sinner. You look at the Ten Commandments. Let's see how you do in living the Ten Commandments. You're like, well, I don't murder. Everybody knows that. That's like one of the Ten Commandments. You're right. You're right. But have you ever lusted? Have you ever looked at what somebody else had and said, man, I'd love to have that? I mean, all of these things are sins. And so every one of us is sinner, is a sinner. And because God is righteous, because he is holy, because he is a just God, our sin can't be overlooked. It can't just be swept under the carpet like, oh, it's just not a big deal, you know. It's kind of like when you've got kids, you know. You've got kids, and sometimes they do something that's so wrong, but they're so cute while you do it. You're just like, I can't discipline them for that. Well, God doesn't do that with us. God can't do that because God is righteous. God is holy. God is, God is just. That would be a cowardly God, not a righteous God. So God demands for sin to be dealt with, and that's very clear. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Okay? This means that sin is dealt with by death. It's mandatory. It's mandatory. What every one of us deserves, because we are sinners, is we deserve death. We deserve a physical death. We deserve a spiritual death. We deserve to spend hell in eternity because of our sin nature. But God, but God, because he loves you, because he loves your friend, because he loves me, because he loves every one of us, God created another way. Out of God's love, in fact, if we look at Romans 6.23, remember it says, for the wages of sin is death. But the rest of that verse, Romans 6.23 says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And Paul explains it a little further in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And it says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So because of God's great love for us, because of how much he loves us, because of the, the, the value he puts on our life, instead of requiring us to pay that penalty for our sins, which would prevent, which would prevent us from being in heaven with him, which would bound us for hell, What God did is God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to the earth to live as a human, just like you and I live and and to live a perfect life that you and I were supposed to live. But we can't live because we always blow it. And 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 Jesus paid the penalty of death in our place. So why do we need a savior? 
We've said this a couple times throughout the sermon series. Because either death will destroy you or Jesus will destroy death for you. Either you will experience death, you will experience eternity separated from heaven, you will experience that death yourself, or you will choose Jesus' sacrifice for you. Either death will destroy you, or Jesus will destroy death for you. Either we choose to surrender our lives to Jesus, or we choose to suffer eternity in hell on our own. So the question is, how do you choose Jesus? How do you, how do you, uh, how does Jesus become your savior? Romans 10 says it very clearly. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The Bible is clear. How do you become a Christian? How do you ensure that you go to heaven? You confess with your mouth. You, you cry out and you say, God, God, I surrender to you. God, I, I, I surrender to you. I, I can't do this on my own. God, I need Jesus' sacrifice for me. And then you believe in your heart. Remember, we said that the heart is your control center for all of life. So you will allow God to become the motivating factor of your life. You allow God to become your Savior. And if you haven't surrendered to Jesus Christ as your Savior... If you've never done that, can I encourage you to do that today? Can I encourage you to surrender your life and your will to Jesus Christ, to invite him into your heart, to invite him to be your savior? Because I tell you, we've talked about heaven and hell, and the most important thing that we can understand is heaven and hell has nothing to do with whether or not we are good, whether or not we are bad. It has nothing to do with whether you are a good person, whether you are a bad person. Heaven is for those who have surrendered to Jesus. Heaven are for those who say, Jesus, I exchange my sinfulness for your righteousness. I choose what you did on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. Those are the only people that will be in heaven. There's going to be good people in hell because they never surrendered to Jesus. There's going to be bad people in heaven because every one of us is bad. And if you surrender to Jesus, you will be with Jesus in heaven. Would you pray with me? God, this is a little different of a message today. It's something more, Lord, just for our knowledge and to understand kind of who you are. And God, that you do care about these types of issues on how we look and we say, God, I understand this idea on heaven and hell. But God, I just help me understand some of these other implications. So God, I pray that you would give us that knowledge today. I pray that you would give us an understanding. I pray that we would understand that you care about the concerns of our hearts. That, God, you speak to the concerns that we have. And, God, I pray that you would help us to, to surrender our own logic to, to say that's going to be filtered by what your word says. God, I pray for some of those today who came in and had these concerns. God, I pray that you would encourage them with your word. That these would be answers that they could embrace and say, God, I trust you. God, I don't always understand, but I trust who you are. God, I pray for any of those in here today. God, if they don't know you as their Savior. God, we've said this time and time and time again. It doesn't matter if you're a good person or a bad person. It depends on whether or not you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. God, I pray for any of those in here today that, God, if they have not done that today, that they would have the boldness to say, today, today I need to choose Jesus. Today I need to surrender my life. I need to choose Jesus as my Savior. 
God, I pray, I pray that they would have the boldness even to say today, I'm going to pray this prayer. I'm going to say, Jesus, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I understand I have sinned against you. God, I'm sorry for that sin. But today, today, God, I surrender myself to you. I invite you into, the, into my heart to be my Lord and my Savior. God, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And God, I today am surrendering myself to that. That I will be known not by my sin, but I'll be known by Jesus' righteousness. God, thank you for saving me. And if that's your prayer today, praise God, because that's what it takes for us to be in heaven. It's not a special, it's not all these words, but it is the act of saying, God, I choose you. I surrender to you. And God, I pray for each of us this week. I pray as we've, we've talked about these things, about living in light of eternity, God, I pray that you would help us to do that. That these ideas of heaven and hell wouldn't just be something that we think about when we're at church on Sunday, but that, God, we would actually live our life in light of these things. That we would say, God, I'm going to live my life and be different because I know that hell is a real place. And I know that hell is a real place. And the people around me, unless they hear about Jesus, unless they hear the gospel, that they will be bound for hell. So God, I pray that each of us would not take this lightly. That our lives would be changed by these truths. God, I love you and I praise you and I thank you for this time together. And I pray that we'll have an opportunity just to respond to who you are through worship the next couple of minutes. God, we love you and we praise you and we ask this in your name. Amen.